To the seventy-second episode of the Opt Optimism, Va- I almost forgot what the word Optimism Vaccine Network. We call it Opt uh, so often. Um, welcome. I'm here with Jack Eason. This is going swell, Sean. This is a great intro. Yeah, uh, thank you. I thought so as well. And uh, Jake Tropila. Hey, Sean. I don't blame you because when you search for Optimism Vaccine. In the podcast networks, you won't find anything. You have to search for OpVacCast. Yeah, it's um, it's not an optimal name, yeah. is it? Kudos to whoever named that. I'm guessing it was Steve. <laughs> Who can tell? Who knows? Um, well, we are here today to talk about uh, the films of Jean Roland. Um, I, I, I think that's how you pronounce it, the French... Uh, director who made a lot of vampire movies. Um, does anyone have a better guess at how it's pronounced? Yeah, I'm, bet- I'm between Roland and Roland. Let me uh, let me Roland. consult my friend Fred Durst here and see what he has to say. I I, I have heard um, a uh, French like a Canadian French Canadian speaker say the name audibly, and if I didn't know by context clues who they were talking about, I wouldn't have known the name that they pronounced. So, uh, French Canadian is its own, its yeah, own accent and whatnot. Uh, yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, Jean Roland, it looks like Jean Roland. <laughs> How about that? Um, Jean Roland, Jean Roland, Roland, Roland. And, uh, yeah. So I, I had never seen any, uh, uh, Roland films. Before this, but I was interested for a few reasons that we'll we'll get into. Um, but uh, I around the time that I became interested in just him as a figure, uh, Jack, you had seen quite a bit, I believe. But it had been a I little think bit. So yeah, yeah, it's it's been a few years. I actually found out I watched my first uh, Rolling film on September eleventh, two thousand and eleven. Uh, draw from that what you will. The tenth anniversary. <laughs> yeah. Uh, interesting. Um, okay, so not terribly long, but, um, and, and Jake, you had never seen any, is that correct? No, I've always confused Jean Roland with Jess Franco, who has a similar body of work, if not as well-renowned. Okay, but except, um, uh, ac- uh, across the European continent. Yeah. Well, yeah, I guess, I guess there's a difference. I think Franco is well-renowned. I think Franco may well be better known, but Franco is kind of the... But his films are not as good. No, yeah, well, that's, that's the question in terms of high points and things. Certainly, I would back, if I had to sit down and watch a single random film from either, I would go with Roland over <laughs> But they were both working at the same time? They were. I mean, they, they certainly fall into that category of, uh, uh, European kind of uh, horror schlock directors, but but Roland certainly cultivated an art house, quote unquote, aesthetic that so, the others sometimes tangled their way into a bit, but right. was much much more dubious uh, in its. And I, I would I would defend certain Franco films as certainly really impressive films, but certainly Jess Franco is not an art house director by any stretch of the imagination. So you you use the term schlock, uh, and it's one of those things. It's like pornography. You know it when you see it. Um, yeah. 
But what, like, what is schlock? Because I wouldn't consider the Rolin films that I've seen as schlock. Yeah, I, I think there's a miscommunication to a certain degree, um, I mean, which I think is very is very easy to see. Um, Roland did not have a very high profile to me prior to around kind of the, the mid to late kind of 2000s. I really hadn't heard of him prior to that, where I'd heard of Joe D'Amato and Jess Franco and people like that, you know, quite routinely. Joe D'Amato um, is very clearly schlock. Very, very clear. Too clearly schlock, where his <laughs> films are actually visible, where like it doesn't look like it was shot in a mud pit. Right. Um, but yeah, um, and I, I think so. So Rolling kind of came became more visible, I think, with kind of a rise for, um, on DVD and Blu-ray, particularly uh, in the 2010 or so. We kind of got a resurgence um, through, I think, Kino's Redemption Wing. I think Redemption uh-huh. is a sub-label of Kino, and it specializes in horror and schlock cinema. And if you look at the artwork for these films, Kino are definitely peddling up schlock hardcore on these films. Just naked ladies with blood dripping out their, their mouths. Their stock models are like in a lot of them. They're not even like they're not even screen caps of from the film or posters from the film. They literally got some woman in, you like kind of undressed her, throw some stage blood on her, and took a like lurid photo and stuck that on the front. It's it's really awful what they've done. But it kind of, it, I think Rulian benefits from that or has always been associated with that style of, of marketing, even though his films, as we'll discuss, are much stranger and yeah. much, much more, and, and I think more so than, you know, and we keep going back to Franco and, and D'Amato as, you know, possible kind of um, uh, similar directors, yeah, analogs within within kind of a time and a place within Europe in the, the 60s, 70s, 80s, um, working in really micro-budget cinema, but I think Roland, well, much more than the other two, has a distinct auteurist sensibility. The other two right. much more reshape themselves to market values wherever wherever they had to. Uh, I mean, honestly, Franco's auteur status to a degree seems to be the fact that he just literally couldn't stop making films, and that is kind of what defines his cinema to the point where his biggest fans kind of <laughs> acknowledge that a lot of his films aren't good, but the concept it's like an endurance is that, test. Yeah, yeah, well, it's the concept that he just, he couldn't not make a film. Like, everything he did was, was just filmed and turned into films and he just he couldn't stop which right. is i mean there's a weird obsessiveness to it uh damato just as we've discussed like was really just just cynically would just he just wanted to make money he just it was a job yeah and there was he he would be the first to say there was no art behind much of what he was doing um Roland, I think, is absolutely genuinely an artist. Or certain genuinely conceived of, of himself as an artist. Well, uh, and, and his films bear that out. In, in since we're bringing up these other analogs, uh, European analogs, um, I was reading just a little bit, and um, and one uh, one piece. I think it was sort of like a intro piece for a uh, um, a series at the Quad, uh, probably a few years ago or a couple years ago. And um, I think they're having one this year. I think huh. in New York. I think right now there's a series. Maybe it's, maybe it was more recent than I knew. But um, <laughs> but it, it, it frames him as um, as a director without a clear like they they mentioned uh, Franju uh, Georges Franju and some somebody else I can't remember offhand as like Bouillard, perhaps maybe uh, but like but that there wasn't really a clear antecedent for this style of this genre uh, like vampire movie really it, um, that he he was sort of a new thing in France at least. 
There, there's, um, I, I don't know if I agree with that too. Like, he was kind of within that cinema fantastique. I, I think, that, like, that's why I mentioned Fouillard as, as one of the early, really one of the, the kind of founding fathers of cinema surrealism. Fouillard worked in, which brings us on to Franju, because uh, Fouillard, of course, made Judex and adopted yeah. several several serials into the, or several kind of pulp novels into the serial I saw that term, that, that term fantastique uh, came up a lot. So is that like a movement yeah. that was happening? Yeah, I think so. And I, I couldn't, I couldn't define the specifics of it more than that. It, it is, I think, to me, it's always felt something closely tied to surrealism. Um, okay. But not not as as much, kind of somewhere between surrealism and kind of also the Grand Guignol, which is another uh, French theatrical tradition, which I think certainly overlaps with some of what Roland is doing. Um, but yeah, I mean, like Fouillard did these kind of unusual kind of theater pieces uh, with kind of sexual energy to the masks, very strange setups, very you know no focus on naturalism, so on. I mean, he was a very early innovator of watching his films. I mean, we're talking. 1913, 1914, when he was when he was making some of his best known works, but they've they've carried through, and certainly Le Vampire, which is one of his most famous series, mm-hmm. uh, certainly translates Roland. Franju would later make his own version of Judex, which uh, Fouillard originally created the the film adaptation of, and I think Roland fits in with those, but. The difference, I think, is that Roland was very much outside of the establishment. Yeah, yeah, um, it, yeah. He was. I, I, that was another thing that I saw f- him framed as an outsider artist. Yeah, for for sure. Yeah, and I th- I think that 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 really defines that more than Franju is a very respected kind right. of uh, fantasy, science fiction, surrealist director uh, for things like uh, Eyes Without a Face, uh, Head Against the Wall, and, and, and uh, Judex, and uh, Nuit Rouge is another really odd film that, that Franju's made, you know, all involving costuming and men in masks and heists and, you know, grand theatrics. Um, and, you know, kind of with that very lowbrow, serial, kind of pulpy, campy, Elements, you know, kind of tastefully injected into them, but very much, uh, you know, kind of part of the milieu of the the standard uh, kind of, you know, French intellectuals accepted mm-hmm. that it was, and, and I think right. they're very good films. Roland, I think, also made some. But there's very a cinema of films. quality there. Yeah, but 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 Roland was was absolutely like, I'm going to get some naked women and we're right. going to just go to yeah. a graveyard, and that that was his, <laughs> his version of it. Yeah, or the beach, or a castle. He just seemed to find castles. Yeah, <laughs> and you know, and and so yeah, it's it's interesting. Um, and uh, like it's uh, in talking talking about his his anti-establishment version, he does boast that his first film was the highest-grossing French film of 1968, uh, which I've which I've. <laughs> Never, never fact-checked. But of course, 1968 was when Godard right. and Truffaut pretty much cancelled French cinema, uh, along with larger labour riots. They cancelled the Cannes Film Festival. They pretty much shut down the theatres out of solidarity with the with the um, protesters and so on, student protesters and, and mm-hmm. uh, activists. And so Roland's film was, in 1968 in the summer, apparently about the only film you could see in a cinema in France, which might be too anti-establishment, kind of, you know, I'm still going to put it in a cinema, what the heck. Um, hmm. So he, he has claimed it's the highest grossing French film of 1968. Um, it, was, it was almost out of uh, yeah, it, necessity. That may, or that, may or may, yeah, that may or may not be true, but even if it is true, it comes with a major caveat yeah. in terms of, there was it's nothing like, else uh, there. It's like... Um, 
to bring it back to to nine eleven, uh, it's like the, <laughs> as we always love to do on this show. Yeah, <laughs> um, it's like hardball, uh, the, uh, the the baseball movie with uh, Keanu Reeves and um, what's her name? Uh, they his other uh, I can't remember if it's the same actress, but actually no no why not a writer I can't remember anyway, but uh, apparently its video sales were like insane because. It had this presentation as just this very congenial film, and it was like something about the placement and the time it came out right after nine eleven, where like people would go to the video store and just like grab whatever didn't look like it was miserable, <laughs> and Hardball was political. like yeah, and it was like a new release, and so that it just like yeah really bolstered sales for that. Nice. Well, uh, I think we provided a nice intro uh, for Roland, and uh, yeah. so we're gonna, well, we're gonna. Should we should we get into why we're discussing Roland? What what the time of year is for, oh, for of us? What, a little extra context. Why is that, why is that Jake? Well, uh, every year it seems we uh, take a filmmaker who's. Uh, this is actually you're the focus typically, Sean. We take a filmmaker whose body of work and horror you're not uh, as familiar with, and we run through a series of his films. Usually uh, Jack and I will take one set and Steve and Adam will take the other. And uh, this year's actually special because I, too, have never seen a Jean Roland film. And uh, so, yeah, this was a very uh, interesting experience to go through. Yeah, we we got a twofer on this one. Yeah, we, and we both yeah. picked uh, directors, uh, one Italian, one French, who both dabbled in uh, some pornography while they uh, worked on their mainstream output. Thankfully, thankfully, this episode uh, has no vintage porn uh, talk, or, or rather, thankful, thankfully, I didn't have to sit through any of it. That's true. Yeah. yeah. I did, well, I feel I feel of nothing else. I think I, I ended up picking the titles as the person who had seen them, and uh, yeah, I stayed away from Schoolgirl Hitchhikers uh, for your in for, cinema at least. Well, yeah, it's true. I, to be fair, I don't actually that one. I don't even know if that is a porno or just a really really bad film. I really don't know. Uh, I may have seen an edited <laughs> version of it, but no one, dear listener, you do not need to see that film. No one else needs to. It's fine. So, Today we're gonna we're gonna talk about um, the nude vampire from 1970, uh, uh, the Night of the Hunted, the Iron Rose, and Fascination. Is that correct? I think yes. I screwed up the the uh, cr- chronology, but um, those are the four that we're gonna be talking about. Um, so I, I think we have a nice mix of sort of the vampire stuff and the non-vampire stuff. Um, but yeah, so why why are we choosing the nude vampire first? Well, I mean, besides um, I, its time, but why did you want to include that in the in the lot? So, yeah, so so I think when you, when you talk about distinguishing between his vampire versus his non-vampire film, it, it is worth noting that really vampires are kind of the central pillar of Roland cinema. Uh, he started off making a series of vampire films. Uh, his debut was, I believe, The Rape of the Vampire. He then made Requiem for a Vampire, The Nude Vampire, Lips of Blood. Uh, and, and then he went on to make two orphan vampires many years later, and very he would he was always ducking in and out of vampirism in his films, um, and so I think we we I, rather than getting bogged down in those first films, I think the nude vampire is an interesting cross section. It's a second feature, uh, his first color film, and it's a very unusual film. Um, it's an unusual film, I think, by any metric you'd like to apply <laughs> to it. Um, but it's it's unusual as well within Roland's cinema because it kind of enters into some science fiction details while maintaining, I think, it's it's a pretty good 
introduction to the, what he was doing at this time in his cinema and these first three or four films, um, which is a lot of very odd costuming, a lot of very yeah. unusual mise-en-scene, uh, a lot of female nudity, absolutely. Uh, the vampires in his films are women. They're young, naked women, really. I mean, that's kind of the... The, the, the true line through all of them I think if I remember correctly actually, I think in uh, Lips of Blood he he might have had a male vampire I think that's kind of an exception to the rule. oh weird yeah yeah very strange but yeah I mean it, it, as a spoiler for anyone even in no matter what film we're talking about here naked uh, female flesh is very much a given within Roland's work he was always just so there's always this erotic vein and we might discuss whether or not it's successful or, or convincing but that was certainly you know kind of a major part of what he's doing um so the nude vampire yeah it's it's i mean it starts as a vampire film a very strange vampire film it concludes as a mutant film uh, it's almost like an x-men like a reject from the <laughs> x-men canon about how mutants are the next evolution of man and will take over uh, which is delivered in a speech on an abandoned beach just kind of almost as an afterthought at the last scene of the film and then it just like film over we're done um yeah so yeah so yeah that's the it's new very vampire, much like um it, it seems like uh uh, for lack of a better word, like an or like sort of an eyes wide shut type of orgy is sort of the centerpiece of the film. Yeah. It takes place in this. In this Certainly, yeah. yeah I'm, they're I'm all wearing these what, masks. Yeah, yeah, I'm just curious. To think like for you guys, because this was the first Roland film also that I ever saw, and I saw it and I hated it. I thought it yeah, was it terrible. And uh, <laughs> then a couple of years later, I came back and I watched it again. And I. I didn't exactly like it or think it's a great film, but I certainly found a lot more in it that was, you know, seemed at least unusual to me. I was familiar a little bit more with the cinema at that point. So I'm curious, yeah, like, Sean, you say it was, it's no, bad. No, I didn't but, hate what, it. What's but... your, your response? I mean, did you find any positives or was this really oh, yeah. a chore? I mean, the thing is with, uh, I think especially Roland's work, but but for for some of these uh, directors that we've talked about, um, when you're being introduced to a very... Because what is usually the case, I guess Carpenter is sort of an outlier, but what is usually the case is that it's a cinema of very uh, particular style and set of preoccupations on display. And so you're you're sort of diving into something uh, strange, and so it takes acclamation. Um, so I think this first run, um, I mean, I, I didn't feel this the same way towards uh, the other films that I that I did towards the Nude Vampire, but um, but there, I, I think for just generally speaking, it will take like another viewing, or you know, as I discover even more of his films to to sort of enjoy embrace the feeling that that is inherent in his cinema. I think the Nude Vampire is. Uh, quite boring um, but it, I mean there's still images that I found uh, uh, quite evocative uh, but yeah it's just it, 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 narratively it's just so lacking and hard to get into but what did you feel Jake? Yeah, I uh, I was much more positive with it than you are, um, and I'm now starting to realize uh, the horror that Jack said off mic that um, I can't pick out anything from this film without thinking it might be from another Roland film I watched because uh, they, they <laughs> do have that they've all sort of blended together over the past week or so that I watched them. But um, I do remember, I thought the opening was kind of striking. It's a, a nude woman wearing a hood in a laboratory, getting blood withdrawn. Um, I thought, but yeah, I thought uh, Roland is a kind of filmmaker who deals more in atmosphere 
than any sort of clear or concise narrative. Um, so it's a lot of bit, a bit more about mood and, and like evocative right. imagery. Um, but I, but, but yeah, but that was, it was, I was a more positive experience on it. Um, and I think watching all the films, uh, it's kind of good to start with this one because formally he really grows as a filmmaker. Like a lot of the quote unquote action is very like jump cutty and not well put together. Uh, like where he, he assaults the guy to get his ticket to go into the vault and, and like the particulars about the, <laughs> the eyes wide shut ball, I don't know. Like I guess people get a ticket to kill themselves as a sacrifice. Yeah, it's for it's this a weird vampire. suicide cult yeah. that they show up to. Bizarre, as but, one does. Yeah, as yeah. I mean, you got to have something to do in in Paris on your days off, like most. So <laughs> yeah, show up to that. What's your but What's your yeah, think, yeah, there's nowhere to go. Yeah, in terms of, in terms of action, certainly. Yeah, I, I'm. This is this gives you like. I, if for anyone who might be familiar with like Goddard and the new wave and the way they would shoot action almost as a pastiche or a kind of a like so downplay action mm-hmm. as to almost make it a kind of a comic thing you know the way that say Jean-Paul Belmondo was shot at the end of Breathless I mean it's almost like a, a comic non-event with it, the way that they depict it and there's so many gunfights in Truffaut and Goddard films that like looked like they were just thrown together you know and there was there was a theory behind that Roland I'm not so sure there's a theory so much as just a disinterest um, a sort of a necessity that they fire guns and that people don't get injured because they're vampires that's a kind of a thread throughout this film is that they, they they've discovered vampires and they are immune to damage um but other than that, they are uh, so they shoot them with guns whenever they threaten them, and they just, there's you know nothing happens to them. They're very stagey, awkward action sequences. It sometimes switches between day and night, in between cuts within chases. Yeah, um, and and it's kind of you could argue like is this part of the surreal aspect of it, or is it just the fact they had no money? I you know I don't know. You you kind uh, of have yeah, to be along seems, for the ride. It does seem like. Um part of the the Roland charm is that that stuff the, there's such ambiguity between um, what is you know part of the inherent style and what is uh, out of necessity because he was an outsider artist and you know didn't have the same type of resources that, that it seems like a lot of his fans get um, it, they embrace that aspect yeah I, th- I think you certainly if you know, if your interest is piqued by Roland and, and discussing this, uh, certainly be be ready for some very unusual kind of and very threadbare sequences. And, and interestingly, when we talk about the new vampires being kind of having a, a lackluster plot, but honestly, it has probably a more developed plot than the films that surround it of this period. Um, what, what with its kind of science fiction element about vampires mm-hmm. actually being a mutant breed that are a sure. new evolution of women and so on. But certainly, as Jake says, it's about atmosphere. Roland is not particularly concerned with following up, or, or you know, there's certainly no suspense element particularly evoked. In, no, you know, we don't. We don't know why they have this woman in a hood and they're taking her blood. We don't know why there's people who all show up at a chateau in Paris and kill themselves. Uh, we have no idea why any of this is happening. But the reveal for them and the the kind of the the reasons that are provided throughout the film are not like unveiled with any kind of grand, you know, kind of suspenseful kind of unveiling. They just sort of are delivered in deadpan dialogue to get back to the next unusual set piece. 
Indeed, yeah. Is this the film that ends with, um, like, the horde of vampires storming the castle with the guy in the cape? Yes. Okay. Yep. I'm starting to remember yeah, more now. The guy, the guy in the cape, and then they venture into another dimension where the guy in the cape has green face paint. Okay, I don't remember that. Uh, I, since, since we're since this is the only vampire movie that we're talking about, I I, I was wanting to read um, this clip from an article sure. uh, by by uh, Nick Pinkerton from Sight and Sound earlier this year, um, where he talked uh, a bit nostalgically about um, uh, his experience with uh, Jean Roland's filmography. But this part in particular uh, has to do with vampires. Roland was famously associated with the vampire movie thanks to a cycle of four pictures beginning with 1968's The Rape of the, Rape of the Vampire, which featured his enormously idiosyncratic take on the bloodsucker. Though in years to come he dabbled in all manner of supernatural horror, it seems correct, incorrect, however, to, to call Roland a horror director. So little do his films rely on the engineering of classically constructed suspense sequences or jump scares, kind of like you were saying, Jack. His work is often startling in its imagery, for example, a tall, narrow grandfather clock opening to, re to reveal the actress Dominique in The Shiver of the Vampires. But this startlement is more a matter of transfixingly striking or strange imagery than the truly terrible. A film such as The Living Dead Girl... <laughs> Just a funny title. It's, uh, it's a real film. Yeah. <laughs> in which a recently deceased young woman is awakened from the sleep of death by a toxic waste spill to find herself afflicted with a hunger for human blood is as glutted with gore as any movie made in the period. But what lingers is the terrible sadness in the movie, the desperation of the resurrected woman's best friend in life to find fresh victims for her beloved companion and so keep her above ground another day. Roland's foremost aim is not to terrify, but to seduce, entrance, and archetize. His The Rape of the Vampire released the same year as George A. Romero's Night of the Living Dead. But these movies, each in its own way, a radical break with the horror cinema that had that had come before could not have been more different in their tactics. Romero, a crack editor with an instinct for comp compositional dyna dynamism, was a muscular filmmaker intent on creating and escalating a sense of system overload panic. Roland, by contrast, had little of Romero's pure film sense, but his intuitive and sometimes awkward films are suffused with an emotion born of conviction and preoccupation. Even the occasional action set pieces in his films have a sort of draggy, hypnotic quality. See, for instance, the pursuit across a nocturnal Paris in Lips of Blood, which indicate nothing of a, of a bravura style that might impose itself on a viewer. But if you, the viewer, should care to match your biorhythms to the singular hypnotic cadence at which Roland's films move. Ellipses. I would, yeah, I would, I would certainly agree with this. Roland is certainly one of those directors that you may find benefit in watching his films while you're kind of drifting off to sleep. Yeah. They, they kind of can get very strange. The plot is really not important, so you know it comes down to there is it certainly a strange cadence to his films. They are very slow. I mean, there's there's really rarely in action like we talked about the store. There's a storming of a castle in the nude vampire, and it's really just a group of people walking 
into their destination. You know, there's some gunshots uh, as the the men, the humans, try to repel them. But there, like I say, there's no sense of uh, violence or a dynamism Suspense, or a struggle. Yeah. You know, it's it's sort of like they shoot their cap guns and they no, there's no blood or anything. They don't even bother to pretend anyone's being injured. Um, so yeah, yeah, it's, it's, uh, yeah, and, and it's it's kind of funny too. Um, you were talking about sort of the state that you watch it in and how much that might depend. It kind of reminds me reading that again out loud of the way that people talk and, and Brasson talked about his own work in that, like, you know, he made movies in a way to try and encourage viewers to meet the text where it is. Um, and, and that is kind of, I don't, I don't know that it's necessarily, uh, Roland doing, doing that, you know, like he's not exactly the same type of architect, but there is this same type of, uh, viewer experience that you have to be willing to, in sure. some sense, meet the, meet the text in some fashion. Yeah, yeah abs- absolutely. I mean, and I think this is what the cross section of films we chose for this and we'll get to it down the line, but I think fascination may be the only role in film that caters to an audience at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, outside, outside of his pornography, which presumably does. Um, other than that, like his <laughs> films, absolutely. You have to, you have to go with engage. The film. Yeah. It's not, it's not going to give you like if you were to rent this as a vampire film even you know expecting like a hokey like nowadays hokey universal classic horror film you know it has none of that it, like even even if you're to rent it to look at naked ladies um it'll probably still piss you off if you're not willing to get on board with what Roland unless you're like uh, yeah or 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 uh, especially if you're not from like blast from a past Blast from the past, Brendan Fraser or something. It's just going <laughs> to seem incredibly dated. Um, but okay, so uh, for the sake of time, let's move on to the Iron Rose. Um, get out of the vampire uh, stuff. And so, 1973. So this is a few years later. Um, so this is uh, this is a very uh, succinctly, or I should say, um, I, I mean, it's the whole movie can be encapsulated by saying it's it's this young couple in a deserted uh or um at least at night in this graveyard that's yeah. all that they do is uh they Escape talk from the graveyard and, yeah and kind of like they get lost and run around and kind of have sex uh, rolling around, they they fight, um, they make up. It's it's a uh, it's very yeah. repetitive. Yeah, it's a weird relationship drama. But certainly, I I picked the the Iron Rose for this because for my own run through Roland's films, and I I worked chronologically when I first started working on his films. This was the film that really made me sit up and pay attention. Uh, his previous vampire yeah. films were various shades of interesting, but I think. We can all agree this is this is a very different Roland film, and and certainly much um, in terms of nudity and sexuality, this is probably his most demure film out of his entire career that yeah. I have seen, and it is it's a very um, kind of uh, well, surreal. No, like- there's no like occult happenings, uh, from what I recall. Uh, you know? um, I mean, we we can argue the woman succumbs to a sort of uh, madness. Uh, we we can argue if that's uh, the grave, the infiltration of the the spirits of the dead in oh, the graveyard. Sure. You know, but but it's it's very open ended in that context. But certainly, this was a film that felt like Roland settling into 
his kind of image just kind of into mise-en-scene and this very, it's, it's a film that's loaded with beautiful shots full of kind of portentous omens and symbology it reminded me like I think I mentioned to you guys at the time of kind of uh, revisiting this time reminded me a little bit of something like say Jodorowsky as a film that's just very much replete with kind of kind of symbolically loaded objects kind of scattered mm-hmm. around the frame and obviously it's in a graveyard for God's sake yeah. the other thing the other thing, though, uh, I, I guess that makes it easy to digest is to the casual viewer is that um, it, uh, it, it it's grounded in a real relationship. You know, it, it's grounded in a relationship that makes sense. It's not like um, like fascination, which we'll talk about later, is just like a completely it is fantastical yeah, element. It, it was something that actually struck me watching it this time around, which it, it opens the couple meet at a wedding. Uh, not theirs, uh, another wedding, and they're both guests, and they, the, the man and the woman, they meet up, and they decide to pursue a relationship because they're obviously attracted to each other. Which is, but, uh, which which is a common thing in all of Roland's films, I found. Indeed, yes. People fall in love instantly uh, <laughs> in these films with, with absolutely no forewarning. But um, yeah, what struck me about the wedding scene that opens this film is that like it literally reminded me of something like PLR's uh, L'Enfance New. It's like this thing almost like strangely like documentary real capturing of a of a typical provincial French wedding of the time in the nineteen seventies. It's such a and it's such a, a unusually normal scene in yeah. a Roland film. There's nothing unusual about it whatsoever. It's so it stands out within his work because uh, Roland is it's like he can't he couldn't film two people shaking hands without it seeming weird in uh, any <laughs> one of his other films. And in this whole sequence is so normal um, and seems so kind of alive and kind of. Uh, friendly and like like an ethnographic kind of capturing of of just a a, a working class wedding, and um, yeah. so it starts off this really unusual way, and then the couple meet up later and they organize like, hey, you know, let's go on a date, let's you know see where this goes, and they go cycling for the day, they just travel around, and they end up going for a picnic at a graveyard. They decide it would be kind of fun to go into the graveyard, and then of course the film progresses from there. They basically bed down. Uh, for a little bit of hanky-panky as you do in French films and uh, night comes to pass they lose track of time, night comes out and the graveyard seems to shift in the night, We and we're never quite sure if it's a genuine shift or if it's just, uh, you know, they've lost Subjective, their way yeah. or, or, if the, if, or if actually something is, you know, phantasmagoric has, has gripped the graveyard and it's different now than when they entered and then the, the, it starts to unravel then um, but yeah, it's it's just such an unusual film within Roland that he would actually he starts from a point of reality, which he I think categorically rejects at every stage of every other film he's ever done. It's it's an absolutely bizarre scene that wedding. Um, yeah, to watch now, like there's no, I can't think of another equivalent within his work. I as 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 a the new as a newcomer, um, this one. I, I I found myself kind of entranced. Like this was, this was the second one that I watched, and I yeah, kind of just made me perk up. And there was there was a sort of like uh, you know I kind of let go of of that sort of acclimation to you know narrative and and what have you the usual structure. And I just kind of like it helps that it it it, it starts on the same beach actually uh, that. Um, 
It does, yeah. It's, it's a weird linking between the films, which have otherwise nothing in common. Which, uh, yeah, and uh, apparently it's like a, a beach in, in Normandy, not the one that you're thinking. Um, and uh, and it's from, like, his childhood or something, but uh, which is interesting. Yeah, but, I, I don't recall. It's been a while since I've seen his other films, but I would not be surprised if that features in more than just those two yeah. films. I'm uh, apparently, quite sure. I, I heard it described as... Um, uh, it appears with a comic regularity. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, and, and I think it feeds into Roland being a man who basically grabbed a camera and just shot his actors sure. anywhere that it was free to shoot them. And I guess but it no also, but, it, but it's, beach. it's also a beach that uh, fits his cinema very well, and and it, mm. it it gives this very ghostly feeling to it. Like it has these like. I don't know these big spires sticking out of the sand, and um, yeah, it's, like a it, it's just yeah, it's very foggy, and it just there's something about it that is in, in, yeah. entirely ethereal and, and I mean, moody. You see, yeah, certainly the the upright pillars in there, which I assume are probably to to slow erosion or something. I don't sure. know, but like, yeah. but certainly, like Jake says, I think they they immediately fit into to the tombstones that become the kind of the backdrop of every subsequent shot once they go into the graveyard. The graveyard. You know, the, the entire, I mean, like, is an hour of, like, it's worth noting, actually, uh, for anyone who might be interested in exploring these films, all of them are, like, 80 minutes long. Yeah. That's, like, Roland does not, he doesn't dawdle too much. His films are slow and weird, but, like, they are not long. He doesn't go over, like, eight, I think his longest film is probably, like, 90 minutes. Um, and so, like, for this film, which is 80 minutes long, I think, like, certainly an hour of it is in the graveyard oh, yeah. alone. So yeah, yeah, and it, it kind of sets that backdrop, and then like I say, it's it's kind of like his film is, it's kind of loaded. It's it's sort of a a, a portrait of of I guess like you can interpret it any way you like, but it's kind of a, a world of death, a graveyard. But of course, it's man's kind of framing of death. A graveyard isn't actually dead people per se; they're not <laughs> visible, they're not there. It's it's how we encompass death, and from there you can just kind of take apart the, the imagery anyway you like and, which I think well, is really the film's strength and, and, and you know, going along with that there's that great scene that I believe you captured uh, <laughs> where she has like this skull and she just like she just slowly brings it up to her face with just like uh, so, so so deliberately uh, but it, I don't know there's something about it that's very charming there's yeah no and mm -hmm. the one thing Really, I, this I will say this was not one of my favorite ones that we watched. But I still found a lot of it to be very haunting and ethereal and kind of creepy. And one of my, one of the shots that really stood out to me, which I guess is Roland's uh, use of a red herring, is there's before night falls on the cemetery. There's a few people we see, and one of them is this shot of a clown laying flowers oh, on yeah. a grave. That's right. I forgot about and, that. Uh, you, in any other movie, you'd think, oh, the clown is the killer. <laughs> but it's it, that really just struck me. It's just it's kind of odd, this sad figure. And his, he's, it's like he went came straight from the circus to pay his respects. Uh, and, I don't and, know. I thought that and, was really And there's like weird. a lack of... Um, it, 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 a lack of adherence to... Or, you know, like, it, he doesn't have to do anything with it. Yeah, you know, like exactly. Yeah, no, I, I, think that's, I think that's a really good example, actually, of Roland's style. Like, Jake, you, you describe it as a red herring, but there are no red herrings in Roland's <laughs> I mean, films. Yeah, there's no... Yeah. Not, 
but but it's right you're right it's like it's such an unusual thing but I think it tracks back to like Nick Pinkerton talked about this and it's something I've kind of always associated with Roland as, as I watch more of his films I learned to associate it with him as I learned to read his films it's an earnestness that you know his his films really can be read on a visual level he's not out to trick anyone about anything right. um, and it, you know it's not there's no suspense there's no intrigue there's no gotcha um, his films are very much kind of rhymes of of visual associations and motifs of death and of vampirism and of naked flesh and sexuality that all kind of combine. And you can really draw your own conclusions. I mean, like to the same degree that I don't think Roland, his films don't have particularly clear or potent theses to them. They're very much kind of, I, although the tone, the, 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 the term has become kind of, uh, goofy at some point but like the tone poem a film that just kind of functions in its own little universe not to specifically communicate anything to you but to kind of cultivate a space within which you might uh, you know work out your own things well, or, that's like uh, the, the actual Iron Rose itself is kind of like uh, another good example of that it's like yeah. I don't I don't know what the myth, the mythology is here either and I'm not really sure that you know there is a whole lot to it on that sense yeah, absolutely, and and it's it's worth noting. Um, as I say, uh, what, what was I going to say? It's worth noting that I can't remember what I was about to note. <laughs> um, but yes, so it's so a very good takeaway from there. But um, certainly, yeah, his his films have this. Like, if I have a problem with this, and Jake, this isn't one of my favorite of his films either. I think it's a very important film. I think it really shows a transition right. in Roland's cinema. Um, but I do think that it's it's a film that kind of it's pregnant with meaning for anyone who wants or pregnant with the potential for meaning it's maybe a little bit too pregnant as I say it also this is something I'd also would associate with Jodorowsky a lot of his films are so awash in symbolism and astrology and, and kind of you know pagan symbols and so on that at a certain point you're like just cut it out like roll it back a little bit uh, there's a little bit of that here for me too at certain points it's kind of feels a little too much like what if we were to put this with a tombstone would people think something then um but but overall like i do i do like the film and it's it's kind of interesting i suppose we haven't really noted it too much but that the woman there, there's also an interesting gender element to Roland cinema generally, and the Iron Rose brings that to the fore again, which is that women are kind of occupy. Uh, I suppose it's not necessarily unusual in the whole, but different directors do it in different ways, and Roland certainly does it very much in his own way. That women occupy kind of a, a dual role as both victims and kind of dangerous seducers and and kind of they they have an agency and a power in his earlier films it comes from them being vampires and they're often lonely and they're often injured and they're often like absolutely distraught in their vampire vampire lives but they are also you know sultry and alluring and sexual um the iron rose brings in similar elements um with the the young woman who who kind of leads it off that um the, you know she she's kind of certainly the 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 more docile member of the 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 group but as the film progresses and as the man starts to become more and more aggrieved at them being lost in this graveyard and more upset about it and worried about it that she starts to accept her place in this graveyard which we don't know right. if it's supernatural or not but then she becomes increasingly uh kind of increasingly potent and 
you know, dangerous effectively in that she uh, spoiler alert she ends up like locking him down in a in an underground tomb to suffocate which is uh you, you know and and it's this kind of unusual thing that she's a very demure figure um who kind of circles around to becoming a, a character capable of of kind of asserting her own dominance now in the iron rose that dominance is a very of a very unclear nature um but like i said you can work with that anyway yeah you want. sure all right well um let's move six years ahead to fascination uh so fascination is um jack you described it as sort of like his his most um uh, sort of straightforward or, or audience pleasing. I also yeah, heard it. Uh, I, his is most normal movie. I would certainly think this is probably actually the best entry point, maybe for a casual viewer. Although none of us watched this first. No, and it also has. Um, I, I think uh, Bridget LaHaye is. Is that one of his uh, regular collaborators? She is through this period. Yes, uh, I think her first role was just prior to this in The Grapes of Death, which we are not going to discuss here, but which is. Is somewhat notable as France's first gore film. It's it's kind of interesting to talk about because Roland is very associated with blood and gore to some degree. Even though his films are not particularly gory by any metric, they they have a. I, I suppose his later films from Fascination onwards incorporate more of it, but his his early films are not particularly no. bloody or or gory at all even his early vampire films it's kind of like there's a little bit of blood there to indicate that they drink blood but there's there's really not a, a focus on damage or you know human flesh or anything like that right. it's all that's all done in the erotic rather than the the grotesque um so grapes of death is a zombie film um and a very oh, unusual okay. zombie film um not one I'd, honestly i'm not a huge fan of the film i think it's it's a little uh, a little disjointed and and odd um but it did. It is the first film I believe he made with Brigitte Lehay, who is uh, who was who was at the time I believe a kind of a porn superstar, honestly, with right. the French industry. And um, but I don't know how he and uh, or how she and Roland uh, teamed up. But it was kind of it's it was an incredibly fruitful. I think uh, yeah, well, great. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, I, I think um, well, I read something about, or I think maybe Pinkerton talks in that article about how her. There was just something about her um, countenance and her, uh, like, it's, she seemed to have that same sort of sincerity as, yeah. like, as coming from the, the porn industry, I guess. Not really um, a, a professional, per se, of, of narrative fiction film. And 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 so it just it just sort of seemed to work um, on a it, clever Yeah, level. it would make sense. It would certainly make sense that Roland encountered her through actually working with her on pornographic features and then brought her back out. Because, I mean, Roland's films are not actor-centric. Right. You know, we, we're not... They're not driven by performances. Uh, there, there is no soliloquies to be delivered with great gusto to a caring audience. His films but, are... Hey, like, often it makes sense. It, so, it, yeah, it, also, so, so it also makes sense that if he sense. was, yeah, and, and seeing like if he were to like the type of acting that you expect from a porn film, <laughs> that he would want to sort of mine that for his non-porn films. Certain, certainly, I mean his 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 performance and certainly Hay, and I think it's it's her incredible strength in his films, and I and I really want to iterate. I think she's really good in his films. It's not like this kind of 
charitable sort of like she does okay for a porn right. actress kind of thing. <laughs> like she really she really elevates the films of his that she's in, I think. Um and she does have a vulnerability and a kind of a sadness to her face yeah. which which I think like I say absolutely fits Rollins uh, kind of overriding sense of melancholy that that feels like his concept that vampires are immortal and live forever and live off human blood and are just absolutely desperately lonely right. because so, uh, of this. Jake, what would you say fascination is about? And and then tell us what you thought of it. So fascination follows a, a con artist who steals. Uh, oh, pardon me, a cat just crawled into my lap. Um, Fascination follows a con artist who steals a bunch of money from some people and he hides out in a castle, which is currently occupied by two beautiful women. And he intends to hide out there while the people he stole money from uh, eventually go away. But they have him essentially pinned in the castle and they're firing guns at him whenever he tries to leave. And the women inside of the castle might have an ulterior motive for his stay. Uh, that pretty much sums it up, right? I would say so. Yeah, yeah. Works. Works for me. Works for me. Yeah, and no. I this was uh, this was my favorite film of the of the Roland bunch. Um, this is the film where uh, again really heavy on uh, atmosphere, and uh, we get a lot of nice lesbian sex, which is always a treat to see in uh, cinema these days. But um, <laughs> not enough of it no. in Hollywood for sure. Exactly. Yeah, this is definitely this is very French. Um, but yeah, this I don't know. Just sort of I, I you know I hate to be the kind of guy that agrees with the masses, but just. The way the the blend of his striking imagery and the the sensual imagery and the the way the narrative or the minimal narrative I should say how it all just sort of blended together I thought was was the most yeah. effective film and I think the uh, the oft described scene of Bridget LaHaye slicing a woman with a scythe while she wears only a part a partially open black robe is um the most memorable image i've seen in any of the films we watched for this so yeah yes. this is this is effective for me on so many levels that's, that's interesting <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah no and, and uh, i will say um like again because we've talked about how he's not a he's not a cultivator of stories particularly but fascination definitely has the most developed and story centric kind of feel of any of his films yeah but even then the kind of the reveal of the film is kind of covered in the opening scene we know we kind of know what the ulterior motive is um you know so so even even as his most narratively attuned film he still doesn't re he's not that interested in you know pulling a fast one on the audience we kind of know that the guy is uh really in a in a dangerous position i kind of well, i just watched this recently and i think it's just it's so funny to watch this film in one sense because it's literally a guy in a house with a couple of beautiful women and they they almost they all come all but short of just telling them like we're gonna kill you and he's kind of like just hanging around going like i'm gonna get laid and yeah. that's that's like the incredible the incredible thing of this film is like this guy is uh, an idiot, but also not in any way misrepresentative of masculine culture at all. I I, I need to. Uh, I think this will be one that I'll have to rewatch down the road uh, because I mean I liked it. I I, I thought it was cool, but um, I think I was too focused on when the turn was going to happen for. Like I wanted him to be like you know tortured um like obviously you know over you're, you're gonna let us all know sean about your 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 problems <laughs> well over an 80 minute movie uh like you know you can't just like 
torture him in the first like 20 and then you know have a plot well who knows with Roland Joe D'Amato uh, could yeah yeah <laughs> but but I, I guess I kind of wanted I, it doesn't happen for like the it doesn't happen until like the last like 10 minutes and I, I think I was too focused on like when is this gonna happen uh, <laughs> and he's like kind of just running around uh, for for 70 minutes but Roland um, doesn't care when it's gonna happen apparently but uh, I did like it but I thought that it was going to sort of blow my socks off a little bit more but who knows maybe like i said it, it'll take sort of just like yeah. you know having my parents bearing straight this is an interesting film for me because um first firstly i you know i kind of again to reiterate this is a, it's a certainly the closest we could describe any of roland's films to being slick this act like honest this looks like the most professionally done film of his and it's not that Roland is incompetent as a filmmaker I mean he had he had a solid grounding in film theory and film production so I mean like even though he's working with no budget it's not like his films look amateurish in terms of their lighting and composition and often anything but but they are clearly shot with just available elements this is like the only film of his where, where they actually like go into a nice house rather than standing outside of one um, you know there, there's yeah. some uh, shots in his earlier films but like this actually feels like a real period film you know which is unusual um, it has you know kind of costuming and hairstyles and things that are observable that don't look like they were done by the cast just before the camera started rolling but um, what, what interests me about the film again is that it again like I, I mentioned previously we have the women this kind of a gender role within the film of the, the women as being so it, it kind of turns on its head this concept that we have this 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 outlaw as Jake says who kind of takes refuge in this house and he's a gun and he basically holds these two women hostage but the, at no point do we genuinely think these two women are in danger we understand no. this dude has yeah. this dude has stepped into something and he has no idea how much like he's absolutely the prey and he doesn't know it and the film kind of it's I think is this really fun twist and it's done here and there but like the general role of these kind of you know, and often, honestly, really gross uh, kind of Euro schlock films that are made that were churned out at this point is, you know, the, the guy goes in and he's he's really masculine and tough and he has a propensity towards violence because that's what men do. And he ravishes the women, a.k.a. rapes them in these, like, really grotesque kind of scenes that are played out kind of, like, as, as sexually uh, appealing, which is, you know, this really kind of problematic element that these films, like, generally revel in but Rolin undercuts all of that the women have this the, the women are calling all of the shots from the very beginning and interesting the man the, the outlaw who's you know our agent of violence and vice is actually kind of a almost a dandy fop he's kind of like he's 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 like an unusually kind of handsome well-dressed clean-shaven character like he's nothing like say when D'Amato we have George Eastman uh, the actor who you know he he would play a character who's incredibly common in the film like Rabbit Dogs the Mario Bava film which is a really really grim but pretty you know as these things go really good uh, kind of thriller revenge thriller psychosexual thriller um, that gets really gross in parts I will admit but I think Bava handles it pretty well but you know Eastman you know kind of would, would play that kind of character a lot and Eastman was a really big hulking he was six foot five or so you know kind of big guy stubble sweat you know kind of all of those elements that would come in to make it just this uncomfortable kind of 
nasty environment. There's none of this here. You know, the the guy looks like he stepped off a catwalk for a you know kind of a, a show about you know fun fashion from the 1800s or whatever. The women kind of take their clothes off and they have these you know scenes where they have sex, but the woman initiates it and kind of lures him in. And like I said, it almost feels like the guy is just so stupid he doesn't understand that the women are literally like, "I'm going to kill you, but let's have sex." And the guy's like, "Yeah, I'm in charge." And right. it just keeps happening over and over again. Um, and then we have the the scoundrels outside who are looking for their money, um, who are, you know, kind of uh, in a weird assault on Precinct 13 kind of subplot, uh, are planning to storm the chateau, uh, who, you know, it's, it's this really weird, there's kind of an interplay of class in the film as well, because they are sort of the lower class um, kind of ne'er-do-well ruffians and then this dandy fop character who wanders in is sort of well turned out but also explicitly identifies more with the lower class than with the, the aristocrats he says this himself and he says this in condemning when he finds out that these aristocrats drink blood to maintain their strength to cure anemia but also just for I guess to maintain a youthful visage or whatever that he you know denounces this as the, the rich effectively you know literally sucking the blood from the poor it's kind of this class dynamic within um, it's, there's just a lot of really unusual elements within Fascination and it plays with a lot of these elements that come kind of par for the course for these films but Rolin has reshuffled them uh, presumably on purpose although it's very hard to tell because right. all of his films seem so like all of his films seem so unmotivated to mm-hmm. explore what they contain beyond the imagery but obviously Roland made all of them and yeah, there's, put all the there's stuff like in. a pure essence to it in a, mm. in a sense that 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 feel less like uh, articulations or constructions and more of just like sort of this stream of consciousness almost yeah, and, and this one is interesting again for Brigitte LaHaye because in, in Grapes of Death, and it's been a while since I've seen that film, but I, re- I recall in that film she's presented originally very much as a victim um, and she's a very vulnerable woman who then becomes, uh, it turns out she's actually, it, it's a zombie film but it involves a virus, a virus that makes people behave like zombies and it turns out that she is not, she she has feigned her vulnerability to lure a character into a, into her kind of grasp and then she turns into a very she is violent and wants to to kill them and she's kind of subject to a mania uh, in this film she's not really ever presented as vulnerable indeed of the two main women she's she's not the one who instantaneously falls in love with the man for no particular reason um she's the one who's really the pre- kind of a praying mantis a predatory creature she's all business and it's mm-hmm. her her other the the other woman is the one who tries to protect the guy but interestingly doesn't um <laughs> so so you know there, there's kind of interesting elements and one, one other thing that i wanted to mention i don't this may not be a reference anyone else uh, can identify with this it may be a very personal reference i guess but um getting back to jess franco um i've only seen i've seen maybe 10 or 12 Jess Franco films, which is literally like 10% or less of his <laughs> overall catalogue. Yeah, a lot of work to do. Yeah, oh my god. Uh, and one of them has been great, and at least four of them have been <laughs> abysmal. So, um, you know, mileage may vary. But one of his films, and I don't remember the exact title of it, but it was one of the Ilsa the She-Wolf films, which are notorious Nazi exploitation films that I 
couldn't in good conscience recommend to anyone. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're kind of films that nowadays, if you're going to watch it, it's pretty much because you're writing a paper on them. I feel like that's the only reason to venture sure. into that. But uh, he, he made one of those films and it was set in the jungle for some reason. Um, and it ends... And it, it It's a terrible film, I will say that. I think it's a really bad film, but it ends with this really remarkable sequence where ba- ba- the storyline of the film is that Ilsa, the Nazi warden, basically has all these women imprisoned and she sexually abuses them throughout the film and does horrible things to them and, and she's just a sadistic monster. And the, the close of the film involves all of the women basically rebelling against her and literally they just eat her alive all these these women just just pin her down and they eat her alive and that's that's the conclusion of the film and this uh, fascination has a very similar sequence where Mm -hmm. one of the women becomes injured and the blood drinking women and again we're not sure that they drink ox blood to cure their anemia it's very odd yeah but they seem driven by something more than that and it's not vampirism there's nothing explicitly vampiric or supernatural in this film at all but you know they're they're kind of driven by this blood frenzy to devour the woman <laughs> once she's vulnerable and it just struck me again that in this case um it seemed a similar image but Rolin had a specific perhaps class element to it that they, they the rich have turned on their own devoured the vulnerable to maintain the status quo they can't help themselves it's kind of picking off the weak among even among their own group before seeking out the guy again there's um, also a, there's also like an almost sexual element to it, which might just be because, you know, he, he shoots things, he shoots porn, and so there's certain compositions. But I mean, when when you've got a bunch of women who are literally nude except for <laughs> yeah, sheer, oh, they, they, maybe that's all, it. Like all all the women for their blood drinking ritual, for reasons best known to no one, all decide to put on these entirely sheer kind of slips right. for no reason, and that's what they're wearing when they. What do you think the, the, the temperature was like? Like, what do you think the weather oh, was man. like? I, they must have been cold. It looks cold and damp looks, and wet yeah, throughout that bitter. film. Um, yeah, when, when all the women start, like, taking off their shirts in this film at certain points, and they're wearing nothing but their shirt, like, underneath, and I'm, I don't think I don't think you would have lasted long in that time in history in that part of the world if <laughs> right. that's how you chose to dress. I, I think a lung infection would be coming in. I don't know. I think a lot of castles are well known for their uh, central heating and air, so uh, <laughs> it could have been a very comfortable <laughs> set that Roland ran. Well, well, I do I do believe I spotted an electric light switch on the wall at one point in the chateau, <laughs> but I like, oh, I'd like I to say that I have to be goofs. Yeah, yeah, I, I, feel, I like to think that's something like Fassbinder's historical films like uh, Der Nickelhausen Journey, whatever that film is where he he shoots a which is a fantastic film if you've never seen it it's basically a grand historical odyssey shot with zero concern for historical fact or fact oh okay uh, indeed Fassbinder is in every single shot uh, in jeans (laughs) just standing there he just follows the cast in every shot of the film there's cars there's radiators there's electricity they just wander through castles it's a very odd experiment so I like to write off the light switch that I think I saw in Fascination (laughs) a similar a similar brilliant uh, uh, kind of breaking the fourth wall uh, entry well speaking of uh, speaking of odd odd films with with odd we've never uh, left yeah. odd at this point uh, I was gonna say specifically about like sort of odd um, interiors at least uh, that that is a distinct break from from the films that we've talked about of his uh, I would say The Night of the Hunted qualifies 
Certainly. Uh, and this this is a film, I'll, I'll go on the record, I think this is a legitimately great film. Uh, even if I had all kinds of reservations about Rollins' other work, I love this film. I think this is just a really singular artistic vision. Yeah, um, I, I, I actually started with this one, and... Um, I I liked it quite a bit. It was it was strange, very strange, but um, it 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 becomes very hypnotic. Uh, one of those words that comes up a lot with him. But there's this sure. there's um I I it was like a vapid beauty to it almost, which isn't like a pejorative, but that's just like the best way I could describe it. But they're just walking around in these like tin structures it reminded me of like uh what's that early cronenberg the uh, the ship- shivers. shivers or i got shivers, a shivers not just and not just that but even like the narrative of these women whose minds are deteriorating it felt like they were infected by the brain slugs from shivers oh the the, the overlap here and it's i don't i don't bring this out to disparage this film as i say i think this is a really great film but this it feels like roland saw a cronenberg film it really like there there's no this is made in 1980 so shivers and rabid are both you know freely available i'm sure in france and this has those kind of elements of body horror um that that really and you know and it's kind of a scientific element it takes place in a lab in a hospital treating people who ostensibly have a disease a brain disease they can't create memories um this is all you know and and it's this is a very unusual film brigitte lehay uh uh, re-emerges in this and i think uh, really an incredible role and i think it really you know she she is the the kind of propellant for this film without her this film doesn't fly um this this does have uh some some um straight just like well no it's not lesbian sex it's like some straight sex that um it lasted like quite a long time it does uh, it, it opens with very a very long yeah, first sex scene, scene. Like 5 minutes long <laughs> yeah it do, it opens with a very long sex scene which we will note is like it's it's explicit, but it's not like an actual sex no, scene. It's, it's, we're, no, we're not talking it's not actual very, pornography. It's um, not very but, enjoyable, but I, frankly. No, no, it's it's not very very sexy. I guess I'm not. I I would argue honestly, nothing that Roland does is particularly sexy. Yeah. I suppose erotica is is more of a, a kind of a, a loose term, a kind of more ethereal version. As the quote goes, I don't recall who uh, said it originally that you know uh, erotica is using the feather, pornography is using the entire chicken. <laughs> um, that, 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 that's very that's very much uh where where Roland is he's using the feather but he's using it in a way that no one else ever thought to use a feather uh, like the women are naked and they're beautiful but um beyond that i'm not sure anyone's actually going to extract any kind of sexual use yeah. out of these films but but it kind of works because in this film that we have this very long kind of sex sequence which again falls in line with his films of people who fall in love instantaneously but um it kind of cements a central relationship this is very much a film about uh, a fragmenting of human identity and about a kind of a a grand loss of love and romance and self all tied in together I and mean, it also it, feels like there's something industrial about it as well Certainly, yeah. It, it's I mean, it's an unusual combination. Thing. This is very grimy. Uh, to, to go over the the plot, I suppose. So we have this this um, guy is driving in the middle of the night, and a naked woman who is Brigitte Lehay uh, confronts him, runs out looking for help. So he picks her up, he drives her home. Uh, they end up having an incredibly long sex sequence, um, and then 
he goes to work the next day and kind of a dick move honestly it's a really weird scene where she's literally like I can't form any memories I don't know who I am and he's like cool you work with that I have to go to work <laughs> and that's like that's literally the scene and he goes to work but he's like here's my phone number just in case you need to call me because your brain doesn't work and uh, he goes he goes to work and then this doctor and nurse who have been following her the whole time come and collect her effectively because they, they've been chasing her the whole time and they bring her back to this weird it, it's a hospital a mental hospital but effectively it's like a sterile hot, like modern high-rise apartment complex uh, but it is also simultaneously a mental ward of some description and in here there's various patients at various degrees of this kind of psychological breakdown where they've lost identity they've lost memory they don't know who they are or what they're doing and um the the film progresses from there basically of the there's several very gory deaths this is certainly the goriest of the films that we've we were talking about this has several kind of traditional gore set pieces involving you know grandiose people you know a woman stabbing her eyes out with a scissors um you know kind of sequences like that but um the the main character i guess gets off work and comes home and finds out she's not there and he eventually goes to track her down and tries to rescue her and it's revealed that there is some kind of a, a disease that's spreading through society where people are their brains are deteriorating they're becoming you kind of they lose their memories they become dangerous to themselves and unstable and so they're trying to cure it but they can't and they just end up euthanizing everyone it's a very very strange set of ingredients um but it really you know as without everything roll on it's not really to be taken on face value i mean honestly if you like i say right. that description where he's like oh, i need to go to work you just stay here is an absolutely categorically ridiculous scenario but in a roll-in film you're kind of like okay this isn't the weirdest thing that could happen it's fine yeah you kind of just roll with it exactly um, you gotta what, roll in what did what where does this fall for you jake uh like what did you think of it and and sort of where does it fall in your hierarchy so uh I, this might sound blasphemous but i think this was my least favorite oh, of wow. the ones that i watched um i think this this definitely speaks to Roland as being a singular artist like we all have different favorites yeah, yeah. So he's got something for everyone and I've, I've heard this this is described as like his most sci-fi film which is kind of neat but um uh, yeah, I don't know. This one did, felt something just kind of felt off about the way it moves, and and I was really entranced from the start um, with this mystery of the because not only is this woman in a nightgown like found in the rain in the middle of the night, and the protagonist takes her home, but there's also this other nude woman who is chasing her, and so it really opens it up to this mystery, and I kind of I kind of just found myself lose interest in it more and more as it went on. Um, but I will say that the ending, without giving too much away, it's really, mm-hmm. really sort of this melancholic final shot. Um, yeah, the, the ending is remarkable, I think. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. It's the kind of thing that I feel like critics everywhere... It, it kind of amazed me that people... This film isn't talked about more. Yeah. Um, but but then I guess, I guess in a way, Cronenberg's early work isn't talked about so much either. And this this has it's a not similar, even that old. I mean, nineteen eighty. It's not. Uh, yeah, it's. I, I mean, I suppose Roland is not exactly on on everyone's lips to begin with, um, but but it has this. It does have this un, unusual uh, duality of having a very sterile medical storyline and kind of very 
terse delivery of its of its its narrative elements. I mean, it's kind of like you, these are not characters to get invested in on a personal level. They don't feel real, just like in all of his films. But but then it kind of it cultivates this sense of grand romance. It's this it, kind of in the end we have this love affair that's um, doomed to a kind of a, a it's doomed to an extent that's kind of so overwhelmingly kind of depressing. We, we uh, you know again not to spoil too much. We have kind of a group of people who literally can't form memories of themselves they've lost their identities mm-hmm. and, and again it's worth noting this is such an overlap i think with alzheimer's uh, as a as a legitimate condition of people basically being sure. untethered from their from their own memories and from you know with their own identity and um, and this film finds this romantic inclination underneath all of that to kind of like, there's something that ties them together it's it's this really beautiful strange theme developed through a very strange film um i you know i don't know anyone else who could particularly pull this off um it's yeah. even, it kind of it kind of even cronenberg is generally not this romantic i think the fly is arguably you no know, cronenberg's great romance from that and maybe m butterfly i guess or is his tale of l'amour <laughs> fou um yeah i mean realistically uh, you know like his other films had tend to play up the sterility and the the kind of the, sure stranger as that even like dead ringers is a love story but jesus it isn't romantic no. um, at all uh Roland is very much in on the romance side of this and it kind of it, it counterpoints the the medical jargon and the medical elements to create this kind of uh offsetting of bureaucratic government policy versus very raw human nature and i, I just think it's a really interesting film and it is it's very unsteady <laughs> Like I say, it has these really weird. It has a really weird sex scene that starts very long, <laughs> um, and then it, and then it just has these uh, gore sequences that are really pretty strong. The special effects are not in any way advanced, but I mean they're pretty uh, strong scenes of violence peppered throughout the film, which I think gain a tragic element. I think you know normally you would kind of like oh it's like we go back to say Joe D'Amato and, and Anthropophagus or whatever and he's just like I want to make people puke in the cinema like I want it to be gross um, I think I don't think Rolin is, is propelled by that I think it's certainly it's it's gory and maybe he maybe he played it up for marketing it's certainly possible but I think the extremity of the violence is very much plays back into this concept of these people trying and not being able to maintain their identity and the violence mm-hmm. stems from this kind of disruption of them of their personhood so it's a very you know so it's kind of like the violence is a genuine transgressive act and it's suitably transgressive and how it how it plays out well speaking of like sort of um trying to read into uh what Roland was playing things up for or sort of just like where where does his recognition lie with his own cinema um there's this really great passage, this short passage that I wanted to read from this 2014 piece by Dave Kerr from The Times, because uh, I think this is when Kino Lorber uh, released all those pictures. Um, he says uh, that Roland understood his cinema as essentially private and apart is suggested by a sequence in the self-referential Lips of Blood, in which the hero is lured into a movie theater advertising the nude vampire. 
but the film on the on the screen in inside is the shiver of the vampires playing to an audience of exactly two men who keep their eyes fixed firmly on the screen even as an exit door opens to reveal the beckoning figure of a semi-clad female vampire not only did roland imagine his public as tiny but in a trance so mesmerized by the slow rhythms and rep repetitious imagery of his work that even a flesh and blood monster can't distract their attention yeah i i think that's there's certainly an element to that i think that Roland was why never, why, hmm? why there are two different movies oh, um, yeah i well, don't well, know like but just, maybe like we've discussed earlier it's really hard to keep them separate yeah, the early right. films particularly because i mean he made he made rape of the vampire shiver of the vampire the nude vampire Lips of Blood, Two Orphan Vampires, even stuff like the Demoniacs and a few of the other ones are still, they're still very vampire-centric. They're almost like serial, serialized, like the titles come across as, you know, yeah, just like... A, yeah, yeah, exactly, which is interesting, actually, because, I mean, he was very much, I think, influenced by those kind of sci-fi pulp serial books growing up, so maybe, maybe it was an intentional thing. Certainly, his films are, like, to a certain degree, his films are interchangeable, certainly the earlier ones in that, and it's not to diminish what they are, but that they are, they're very much... You know him toying with a very small uh, vocabulary right. to, to kind of you know kind of explore it in different ways, so to varying effects. And certainly, I mean, I think his earlier films are interesting, but maybe don't binge watch them because <laughs> you'll find yourself <laughs> yeah. overlapping very heavily. Yeah, I would say you know just listing off all those vampire films. I'm glad we watched the four we did because at least there's something. They're all very different. Um, there's a little they, little bit of something are. for everyone, and, and hey, you know, maybe you're maybe if you get your group of friends together to watch these, you'll take away different things and prefer certain or films. Or they'll hate you. Or they'll yeah. Or <laughs> yeah. they'll be shunned from Optimism Vaccine for not yeah. liking that. It, it, and it's worth it's worth noting it's worth noting as well that Roland continued making films. I think Fascination and The Night of the Hunter, for me personally, are kind of the high point of his cinema. They're really. Um, kind of where he was firing on all cylinders he made he was making a lot of pornography around these films to just pay the bills and i think it's pretty obvious he he disliked pornography quite a bit or having you know having to make it um and it's very notable that unlike some of his um i think it's interesting again not to belabor too much but i guess i'm going to um you know joe damato and jess franco it's interesting that they while they changed their their director credits they worked under just countless pseudonyms throughout their cinema um to kind of like play to different marketing conventions like you know uh, a film performs better with an english language you know an english sounding name so they just go give me an english name and they just put that on or like oh people like if this film sounds like it's coming from italy so give me an italian name you know <laughs> right and um, we, we you know and they just they just change their names it's a porno give me any name no one gives a shit um, so, you know, they did that. I feel like a lot of Jess Franco cinema has been reclaimed to Jess Franco's name subsequently. I, I, I'm not exactly sure if that's 100% accurate, but that's what I feel that, like, in the kind of reclaiming of Jess Franco's cinema in the home video era, I feel like restorations have reclaimed his name. And, and there's so many different versions of credits for his films as they're moved between different countries that I feel like the, the version that credits Jess Franco is considered the primary, you know, example um joe damato changed his name to whatever for whatever reason he had like literally a hundred different credits jean roland i think is interesting compared to both of them because he had a series of pseudonyms for his porno work 
um, which he used, but all of his main canon films are produced under the name of Jean Roland. He he really did keep that together, and I think he really did consider himself a, a legitimate artist, maybe in a way that those two didn't. And mm-hmm. I, you know, it's kind of telling that all of his films are collected under one name, and as far as I'm aware, are have always been under his name. And then he had you know various pseudonyms that he used for his pornographic work. Um, which I sure. you know I think he he re- the the only the only non porn film of his that I can recall that was directed under a pseudonym is Zombie Lake, which is a very bad film. Uh, just in case anyone's wondering, uh, to give you an example, the zombies have green face paint. They live in a lake, and the green face paint is not even waterproof. <laughs> to, give you, to give you a sense of how incredible a film it is, but literally Jess Franco was actually set to direct that film. And I'm not 100% sure of this, but I, I seem to recall, uh, for whatever reason, Jess Franco couldn't make the film. Jean Rolin stepped in literally on the day production started <laughs> to make that film. Interesting. Which very much shows, but that yeah. was made under a pseudonym. And I like it's not, a, to my mind, it's not a true Jean Rolin film. It has none of the, the hallmarks. See. It's very much a Jess Franco film. It has... Uh, Howard Vernon and a couple of other actors who were associated with Jess Franco, um, mm-hmm. you know, in their roles. It's just, it's kind of like a Jess Franco film that Jess didn't actually show up to uh, mm. more than that. So, yeah, I, I think that's an interesting thing that, I, you know, I, I would advise for anyone who's interested by this who wants to look at Roland's films and, you know, y- you know, pick your starting point. I think Fascination is a good starting point, but maybe, maybe The Nude Vampire is a great starting point because it's just so absolutely odd. Uh, and the, of, well, the nice yeah. thing is that, like, like you mentioned before, that like no matter where you start, obviously some places are going to be better than others. But it's only eighty minutes. It's true. It's very easy yeah. to, to get in anywhere. But but once you know wherever you start, it's very much I, you know I think you have to approach Roland on his own terms. He like right. earnestness again. I think is the key word. And unlike Franco and D'Amato, who you know I think Franco's general artistic arc developed kind of like just he made so much stuff it kind of just uh, it kind of emerged as a cloud over his work it sort of like it, it just emerged above this incredible bulk of work uh, that people were able to go like oh he this is similar to this or this or this and that's interesting you know i think Rollin really did envision himself as a working auteur mm-hmm. and that his films have to be you know kind of viewed as an artistic whole and he right. really he really does believe this and i think yeah, as, as easy as it is to be cynical or mean spirited about like low budget films or anything, I really do admire and appreciate Rolin as a filmmaker who really there's no attempt to kind of guard what he's doing from the viewer. He's absolutely open about it. Yeah, and you they're, may they're, they're like, you may they're, have varying views on it, but it's there. They're they're refreshing in a way. Um and sure. Yeah. I and I thank you for uh, for introducing us to him. Yeah, um, absolutely, Jake. Yeah, Jake. Did you have any sort of like uh, thoughts on Roland before we close? Uh, yeah, no. I'm really glad I watched these. This is um, not something that uh, for sure. Yeah, always always wanted to. I've been familiar with Roland, but I've never seen any of his films. And uh, and if if I think you summed it up perfectly, they're only 80 minutes. And if you're looking for just something to drift away to. On a, on a cool autumn night in the middle of October, I I can't think of any many better example. These are very much films that exist in like a, a dreamlike state of logic. 
Um, or you so, have like a date over? Yeah, exactly. Pop, pop one in? Exactly, yeah. Get, I, get I'm not sure I'm going to go that Bumping far. and grinding <laughs> from fascination. That'll get the party going. Um, I can just imagine right. getting, getting your lady friend over and cranking up Night of the Hunt. It's like, don't worry, this sex scene only lasts five minutes. <laughs> don't so, worry. Yeah. She kills the guy All with right, a well, hammer. It's great. I think we did uh, our due diligence on on Roland, and For hopefully sure. we inspire a, a few a few watches. Another um, Halloween in the books. That's right. Uh, until next episode, I am Sean, and you can find me on Twitter at Mister Glennis. You can find Jack at uh, Real Jack Eason, uh, and right. you can find Jake Chopila at, at Jake Chopila on Twitter. Uh, right. You can also find Opfac at Optimus Vaccine. And you can send us uh, mail at optimismvaccine at gmail.com. All right. Until next time.